Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with director Matthew Robbins. Mr. Robbins has directed Corvette Summer, The Legend of Billy Jean, and Dragon Slayer. Dragon Slayer will be shown Saturday, March 11, 2017 at 2 p.m. at the main library on 615 Church Street in the auditorium. More later, on to the interview. According to Gilmero del Toro, director of Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy, also collaborator of yours, um, he had this to say about Dragon Slayer. Dragon Slayer is a movie that juxtapositions real-life politics and disappointment with a dragon's fable and a sorcerer's apprentice, a sort of rite of passage movie. Do you agree with that statement? Yes. When I first met Guillermo uh, in Mexico uh, many years ago, like 25 years ago, uh, he was just dreaming of an American career, having made his first feature. The very first thing he wanted to talk about was Dragon Slayer. He and I were put together uh, purely by chance, really. The Sundance Institute sent me down there with a couple of other uh, American filmmakers to act as advisors to uh, young and emerging filmmakers in Mexico. And it was kind of the luck of the draw that uh, Guillermo was assigned to me. And that, I believe, what you just quoted was something like the very first thing he ever said to me. Uh, he, he was a big fan of the movie. And his analysis is, uh, I think, spot on. Dragon Slayer is an original screenplay you co-wrote with Hal Barwood. Could you discuss the origins of the screenplay? Yes. Um, back in those days... Hal uh, was a big fan of the Tolkien books, uh, Lord of the Rings, and he made me uh, read them. And uh, although my, I, I, I enjoyed the books very much, my fans' interest never equaled Hal's, and Hal pushed very hard for something in uh, a overlapping genre. Uh, Hal was also a um, game designer and fan of the emerging computer game industry, and the idea of Dungeons and Dragons was uh, sweeping the country. And it was part of the zeitgeist, but I have to say that it was very much Hal in the lead as to the genre of the picture. Once we decided to try our hand at it, then it became a much more traditional partnership between the two of us. We had written many screenplays together, Hal Barlow and I. Dragon Slayer was a co-production between Paramount Pictures and Walt Disney Production, and Disney at the time, the early 80s, was having trouble finding its audience. Was this why they decided to co-finance this dark adventure, try something new? Yes, they were aware of the uh, phenomena of these games that were out there, Dungeons and Dragons, and that opened the door uh, when they read our screenplay. They were a bit mystified as to where the movie industry was going. I think I'm not uh, saying anything they wouldn't have had admitted uh, at the time. Walt Disney was long gone, and um, the steam engine uh, that had been chugging along for so many years under his leadership uh, was slowing down. Tracks were getting rusty, was, and, and they were very worried. We were a, a new generation of filmmakers that were uh, taking a hold in Hollywood, and they wanted to... Uh, find uh, a new basis for going forward. It turned out at the time that uh, Paramount uh, had been trying for a couple of years to get a screenplay with a dragon in it. We didn't know that, but we found out once we were talking to Disney that 
I guess all these studio executives somehow either talk to each other or know what they're developing. And we were sent over to Paramount to meet with the production department there. And they even showed us a stack of scripts that they had developed on uh, dragons. And they had read ours and thought it was great. And they uh, made this very unlikely co-production deal with a rival studio uh, down in um, L.A. And that's how it happened. The Disney people were more or less our day-to-day executives. And as the film went through its production, we had occasional visits from the Paramount people, and then when it came time for distribution, Paramount uh, had a greater voice. Paramount was the domestic distributor of the film, and Disney had the rest of the world. You didn't get any memos like, put the freaks up front, did you? <laughs> yeah, we did get a few of those. That's, that's the famous THX memo. <laughs> it's so funny to hear it quoted. Yeah, there's always notes. But uh, we had a wonderful um, senior producer assigned to us. His name was Howard Koch. He had been, in fact, a producer for years. He was in the leadership of the Motion Picture Academy and had been head of production himself at Paramount. He had sort of stepped up and out. He was nearing retirement. But he was our um, grandfather, godfather, very, very lovely man. And he uh, helped protect us from... um, um, notes that were really too far afield. He, I think, was one of the reasons that we managed to come through the whole experience without being too beaten down. Okay. How much were you involved with Phil Tip and Ken Ralston in the creation of The Dragon? Very involved. Very involved. That, that um, was... Uh, uh, I was wholly absorbed in the design of that dragon, and then the execution of all the effects shots. Um, I was. Uh, I have to tell you that when Hal and I were cooking up that story, we very much intended for ILM to execute the special effects. We were very old friends, very close friends with George Lucas, and had been with George uh, for literally for the founding of Industrial Light and Magic. When I say literally, we went. It was in those days in Van Nuys, California. He was hiring John Dykstra and his team to do this special effects on Star Wars. Uh, We were very, very close to that whole process. And one of our thoughts as we went into this adventure was that here was an opportunity for ILM to execute special effects in something other than outer space. Uh, And Hal is, uh, and still is, uh, very, very uh, gifted and knowledgeable about all things scientific. And ILM's advances in that field were something that he really understood and was very excited about. So, and I should mention as well that the dragon design, which is one of the more, I mean, so the, the pictures become something of a cult film among dragon aficionados. And one of the reasons is the design of that creature. And it was done by an artist here in Northern California who unfortunately died about two years ago. But his name was David Bennett, B-U-N-N-E-T-T. And uh, he did a lot of pre-production illustration work for Hal Barwood and me. Uh, we needed this presentation artwork in order to make a package for the um, uh, studios to see when we were first uh, presenting the screenplay for consideration. And he was so talented and had so many ideas that we uh, asked him to please uh, come up with a dragon design. And uh, Hal and I worked very closely with him even before Phil Tippett and Ken Ralston came on the scene at ILM. 
in doing research, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, on Dragon Slayer, instead of using a stop motion photography, you used a process called Go Motion, which gave a more realistic looking animation for the uh, dragon. My question is, was Dragon Slayer sort of a beginning for a whole new era of special effects? It, it was, unfortunately, or depending on how you look at it, it was a brief era because uh, it wasn't long thereafter that CGI put its nose under the tent and eventually took over. But Go Motion was a very interesting idea that had been uh, created with uh, uh, Ken Ralston and Phil Tippett and uh, Dennis Muren, now legendary effects supervisors at ILM, but then young and very adventurous and very clever technical guys. And Go Motion was a way to uh, remove one of the telltale artifacts of stop motion, which is the fact that every frame is sharp. Unlike conventional photography, uh, if you look at frames of the famous or any, any stop-motion picture, every frame is sharp because you move the puppet or the armature or whatever it is that must be moved that's in front of the camera, and you step away and you shoot a, a frame or two. And those frames are sharp because nothing is moving. If you look at a frame of conventional photography, people in motion, uh, normal cameras have a shutter speed of only a 50th of a second. It's not that fast a shutter speed, and so there's blur. When somebody is running, the sneakers that they wear are often blurred, even if the body is sharp. It's the sneakers that are moving faster, so that part of the frame is blurred. And it is that blur and the extremities of movement that give you the particular uh, look of things in motion, in conventional photography. Go motion was a way of doing that. It was a way of programming stepping motors in front of, uh, with the creature. It, you shoot the, 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 the frame or two of the creature or the, uh, whatever the puppet happens to be doing as it moves and at a shutter speed that allows those extremities uh, or whatever is moving fastest to have blur. And so you have a very, very different look to what had used to be known as stop motion. Go motion was a uh, much more fluid and convincing rendition of special effects. And for that reason, uh, I guess among others, but primarily for that reason, that uh, the film was nominated for um, an Academy Award in special effects. Did you hire uh, the cinematographer Derek Van Lent after seeing his work on Alien? Yes. Yes, I, I was very impressed with Alien. We knew we were going to be shooting in England, and I met him, and uh, we got along very well, and he was uh, uh, enthusiastic about the subject matter and what he could do with it. You've worked with a couple of icons on Dragon Slayer, and the music score was done by Alex North, and could you talk about working with him? Yes, um, I just uh, wanted a very, I was very ambitious with uh, what I wanted for the music and was interested to see if I could find a composer who uh, shared my interest in modern symphonic sounds. And he and when I, when I met him, we talked about uh, his fondness for Prokofiev, which is exactly where I wanted to go with the sound of the orchestra in uh, Dragon Slayer. So uh, we had a very good collaboration as to what kind of dissonant and atonal music might be appropriate for a movie that was set uh, in, uh, you know, in, in the so-called Dark Ages. It was uh, something of an orchestral experiment. So that was very exciting for me, that he immediately understood what the ambition was. He wrote a wonderful score, and he uh, was nominated for an Academy Award for his work on the film. Yeah, that Chariots of Fire, that shouldn't have won. <laughs> <laughs> 
you also directed Sir Ralph Richardson. Uh, what was it like to direct one of the greatest actors of the 20th century English language theater? Well, uh, he was a uh, unforgettable um, man, and I would say after all these years, when I look back on the very intense and very difficult shoot, because it was a hugely ambitious movie for its day, that my collaboration with Sir Ralph was probably my favorite memory. He was a unpredictable and very eccentric but charming man. Well, I say eccentric in a benevolent way. We were surrounded by a technical team from ILM was shooting all the um, special effects with Vistavision cameras that had been resurrected from the junk heap of the 1950s and early 60s. And uh, it was uh, now and then prone to breaking down. And Ralph never got more excited as when to, he could jump up and run over to the camera when it was open and they were tinkering with it because he loved all things mechanical. Uh, he was a great motorcyclist. He was, uh, um, he was a great conversationalist. He had wonderful anecdotes about his collaboration, uh, uh, participation in many plays over the years, other films he had been on. Over the many weeks that we spent together, uh, I gradually spent more and more time with him hanging out in his uh, trailer because he loved to talk about the script and changes that he thought might work, changes to his dialogue or changes to his gestures, and he would always ask if what I would think of this and that. So uh, we had, we had a, 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 a lovely, lovely collaboration. And that happened as well during the post-production when I had to go back to England for his uh, looping. We, we spent a couple of days together, which was just enormous fun. Uh, you directed a movie called Batteries Not Included, and I just want to read a line of dialogue from that movie. A character, Mason, states, it's reality, and Pamela replies, this is the 80s, Mason. Nobody likes reality anymore. Do you think this is a statement that sums up filmmaking in the 1980s? about that. I, um, filmmaking in the A's and reality, I think she was really talking about the art world, uh, to be really honest with you, uh, Mr. Chamberlain. I, I wasn't thinking about filmmaking as such. I, it's an interesting question. <laughs> um, well, this- I don't know. I, I, listen, as a, as a filmmaker... From my point of view, I have a, um, a dictum that I picked up in when I was studying movies in the early days from Kurosawa, which is nothing compels more than immaculate reality. And uh, the spirit of Dragon Slayer and the spirit of Batteries Not Included tries to adhere to that, and by which I mean that both movies are fantasies, and yet the um, world depicted in both cases I, was as real as I could make it. So uh, I don't think that when I wrote that line of dialogue, Mason's Girlfriend, I was thinking about film in such a uh, literal sense, but since you ask, I, that's the best answer I think I can provide you all these years later. Okay, and on the topic of batteries not included, you directed Hume Crone and Jessica Tandy, again, two theatrical legends, and how did they like working on a science fiction movie with special effects? They had very different reactions, and that, again, on batteries not included, uh, they emerged as my favorite memory of that production. They were both very special people, 
and had a wonderful relationship and a wonderful, wonderfully different manner of working. And with regard to special effects, it was uh, Jessica who uh, was much more adaptable to anything you would throw at her with regard to um, uh, what was needed, uh, even though it's, it, was, it was nothing she'd ever really experienced before, uh, working with imaginary this and imaginary that and holding up... You know, the, the, all the directors talk about the fact that you know you're holding up a piece of tape or a piece of chalk, and you're, <laughs> the actor has to see something that's not there. Hume was uh, very bit as imaginative as Jessica, and yet he felt it was necessary to ask. He wanted to know. He needed his explanations to exactly what was going to happen, and I would have to take much more time with Hume to make sure that he had internalized and understood all the mechanics that were going to be uh, applied to whatever moments or scene that we were doing, once he was satisfied that he had it in hand, he would then go back to Jesse and he would say, here's what's happening, and she would just wave her hand at him and say, Hume, don't worry about it, we're ready to go. <laughs> that was, that was um, how they responded to frequently very odd needs of a, a film uh, that was, uh, again, being processed largely by ILM. In 1974, you co-wrote with Hal Barwood, The Sugarland Express, and it was Steven Spielberg's first theatrical motion picture, and it was based on a true story. Could you discuss how the three of you came together to make this, well, I guess it's a sadly neglected movie, even though directed by Steven Spielberg? It's not neglected in France. I spend half the year there, and uh, whenever <laughs> I'm introduced in film circles, if uh, anybody uh, knows my name is through that movie. It won the Best Screenplay Award at the Cannes Film Festival and is still considered, even after all these years, uh, and is among the top films. It's got a very special place in the hearts of uh, French critics and many of my French filmmaking pals, I guess principally because it's a Americana and the road movie. They associate it with uh, wide-open spaces of the American West, which is romanticized uh, so much in, in France. But your question about how it happened is that uh, Stephen and Hal and I were acquainted beforehand. We had tried to do a few things together. Uh, we were very much of the same generation, uh, and um, we didn't really, uh, we, 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 it, nothing really came together. Stephen was uh, still working in television. He was making a big splash. Duel had uh, been distributed theatrically in Europe and uh, was putting him on the map. And he spotted a news article, just a small uh, item. I guess it was in the L.A. Times about the incident that was the basis of Sugarland Express. And he asked Hal and me if we thought it could be turned into a feature. And very quickly said, yeah, we, it, was a, it was an opportunity for, on a, for a, a, a big look at a, a lot of American themes. And so he, Stephen, um, brought us in to a meeting with one of the uh, production executives, senior executives at the studio, and the three of us got so um, wound up and excited about what we thought we could do with it that he, after about 30, 40 minutes, he held up his hand and stopped us, and he picked up the phone and ordered air tickets for us to go to Texas to uh, do some research. Uh, it, it, right that, that very first meeting, we, we found ourselves uh, very quickly thereafter in uh, riding around with the highway patrol in, uh, in Texas at night, uh, uh, seeing what uh, that life was all about. 
And we met uh, the man who was held hostage by the actual couple in, in uh, that original incident. Looking at your movies, you've written or directed Sugarland Express, The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars, and Motor Kings, MacArthur, Corvette Summer, The Legend of Billie Jean, and Dragon Slayer. You seem to be attracted to characters going on a journey in pursuit of a quest, and I was just wondering, what's your attraction to that theme? It's a natural movie theme because you have the unexpected, which is uh, automatically, um, there's a sense of drama I have to say that uh, in the many films that I've worked on thereafter as a screenwriter, this has not always been a, a theme that has come up. But with regard to your question, it seems to me that uh, as anybody who has taken a vacation can tell you, there is the excitement of heading off on an adventure. And, and uh, if there's a particular quest in mind, there is the, there is the overriding uh, dramatic question as to whether or not it, the, uh, you will achieve what you set out to do. So uh, built into um, a quest uh, are some of the, the architecture of a drama is already inherent in a quest uh, for, the re- for, those, for those reasons. You co-wrote a script with Guillermo del Toro of H.P. Lovecraft's novella At the Mouth of Madness. Does this movie stand a chance of getting made and, and what's the delay? That movie uh, was uh, set up at Universal, and it was a terrible blow when they canceled it. Uh, the movie was well into pre-production. There was an art department, and stage space had been rented in Toronto for it to be produced with Tom Cruise in the lead and James Cameron as the uh, producer. Unfortunately, Universal had suffered some box office disappointments, it's my understanding, and uh, had been taken over by Comcast, and I guess they were feeling a little defensive and cornered, even though they had asked Guillermo to cut a lot of money out of the budget, and he managed to do it. Uh, they felt they couldn't go forward with a movie on its scale. It's a very expensive picture because, uh, if you know the book at all, it takes place largely underneath the ice uh, of Antarctica in a uh, world built by aliens. And it's a vast and uh, stupefying place. Uh, The production illustrations were just astonishing, wonderful, wonderful designs. Whether or not it ever happens, I can't say. Uh, Guillermo refers to that movie as his Titanic, meaning it is uh, his ambition someday to make that a crowning achievement of his career. He's uh, an enormous... uh, Lovecraft fan and uh, has a wonderful understanding of the weirdness and strangeness uh, and the atmosphere of those stories. The Mountains of Madness is uh, one of the most famous, and um, I dearly hope that uh, someday uh, the project will be revived and sees the light of day. Okay, and the final question is just what are you working on now? I'm writing an original screenplay, uh, just finishing it, uh, I hope, this week. It's a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a desperately violent and uh, uh, unhealthy <laughs> movie. I don't know, it occurred to me, uh, I got the idea for this movie out of nowhere one day while riding my bicycle in Paris, and um, it's me channeling Sam Peckinpah. It's just a, um, a sort of a maritime pirate movie, present day, uh, about some people on a sailboat who are overrun by uh, some Venezuelan pirates. Uh, it's just a, a, a it's something my wife never wants to hear about because it's 
hard R violent movie. I don't know really what I'm going to do with it. It's just that I, when I get an idea for a movie, I feel necessary to follow through. And I work occasionally in in Europe, and I also work occasionally in India. And a film that I co-wrote is uh, over there in India uh, is currently in post-production. It's a World War II story. It's called Rangoon with a wonderful director uh, named Vishal Bardwaj. The film will be in Hindi, although I wrote it in English. And it's a story of what happened during the Second World War. Uh, the Japanese were um, threatening an invasion of uh, India from the northeast on the, the Burmese border. I learned all about this, and uh, with the director, we created a love story against this big panorama backdrop of, uh, of the war and the conflicting attitudes uh, that um, the Indian soldiers had to being ally, both allies with the British, while at the same time many of them resenting the fact of the colonial presence. So in terms of what's coming up next that will be on the screen, that movie is anticipated to be released in February, and there is, I think, a, a, a likely chance that it will get distribution in the U.S. and Canada, as uh, Vishal's previous films have done. Okay. Well, once again, thank you for doing this interview for us, and it was fantastic. It'll really go well with the Dragon Slayer when we show it, I believe, in March. Well, uh, best of luck with the screening, and uh, it was... Um, <laughs> It was fun to, to reminisce about these industrial project, but uh, it's and I do hope that people will have a good time seeing Dragon Slayer. I I'm occasionally meet people um, who, having never seen it before, come across it and get all excited because they love. I guess uh, Sir Ralph is so uh, so wonderful, and the, uh, the 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 you know there are people out there who just can't stand uh, computer graphics and what happened to special effects. And Dragon Slayer is held up, among, and people who, who feel that way, as something of a monument to uh, a, a, a now antique technology, but uh, it has its own look and feel, which uh, I guess uh, people still enjoy. I would like to thank Matthew Robbins for agreeing to do the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street to see Dragon Slayer. The movie will be shown Saturday, March 11, 2017 at 2 p.m. And today's music is from Dragon Slayer by Alex North.